Amen. Amen. I want to read a portion of scripture to you today from the book of Matthew chapter 4. And uh, four or five verses here in Matthew chapter 4. Thank God for his presence today. Are you glad to be in the house of God? Verse number 19. Well, let's start at verse number 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now the word straightway in verse 20 and the word immediately, like Andrew and Peter straightway left their nets and James and John immediately left the ship is the same word. And um, most of the times in the Bible it's translated immediately, immediately left their ship. But a lot of times it's translated straightway, but it's the same thing. So I want to preach to you for a little while this afternoon on a subject that uh, lays heavy on my heart and that I think about uh, probably five out of the seven days a week is a good guess because to me it's so important. My title is The Day You Meet the follow me there is a thing called the follow me and the day you meet that you'll never be the same amen and when you meet the follow me everything you have or are or anticipate also meets the follow me Today we want to talk about that in Jesus' name. Everybody said in Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, now there is so much of this that editing is a difficult job. And uh, you have to decide this goes, this gets cut. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time in this message there's lots of material that was left on the cutting floor. Uh, it was all good, but it didn't make the final cut. You can't preach a full book in a few minutes at no limits. Uh, first of all, I didn't know Brother Young, Pastor Young, was going to say what he said about the blessings of God. But it is not difficult for me to stay positive about how good God's been to me. Amen. I would have to lie to myself for me not to say every time the subject came up, God has blessed me. He's been good to me. And um, in my private conversation with myself, I don't say it like that. 
That's how I say it when I'm talking to you adults. But when I'm talking to myself, just me and the kid that is me, I tell myself, Jesus likes me. Jesus likes me. And um, uh, when I'm talking to the devil and he's giving me a bad time, I say, don't you forget, Jesus likes me. It's like the story I've often told. I was at a fellowship meeting and the restroom was in the basement of this old church and I went down to use the restroom and I was about 15 years old and a guy about 18 years old who was a bully came in much bigger than I was and he said, there was nobody in there but us and he said, hey kid. I said, what? He said, you know what I'm gonna do to you? On top of that, he was a preacher's kid. He said, I said, what? He said, I'm going to beat you up. And I'll admit to you, I was scared because I knew he was big enough to do it. But fear is creative. And so what I knew I couldn't do with my body, I thought I might be able to do with my mind. And so I said to him just simple words. I said, I have a big brother and he is upstairs. And a miracle took place. He said, oh, kid, you know I was kidding. I said, yeah, right, okay. See you later. So I tell the devil, Jesus likes me. Don't you forget it, buddy. Jesus likes me. Amen. I mean, he may let me die tomorrow, but he likes me. That's not one of the conditions that goes with, with that. And he has blessed me, and I have lived a supernatural life. And whatever ministry, at whatever age, at whatever location that I have been, um, he has blessed me. He's blessed me with good health. Uh, you know, who knows, tomorrow you may kick the bucket, but you may be 10 years old and kick the bucket. Who knows, everybody kicks a bucket, and you don't know when you're going to kick it. So it just happens. Um, but he's given us opportunities for ministry. Um, I, I, I preached my first revival when I was 18 years old, and it was six weeks, and it was six nights a week at church every night except uh, Monday, and uh, we initiated it with an eight-day fast, almost killed ourselves trying to preach and fast, and, and I didn't drink water. I didn't know you're supposed to drink water when you fasted, and I didn't preach much. I probably averaged preaching three minutes a night, but we prayed through everybody in the place, and uh, 32 got baptized, and a whole bunch got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Hallelujah. And uh, to, to my chagrin, uh, that was my home church, and I don't think it ever has had a revival like that since then, and that's not good news. My wife and I have been everywhere. We've, we, uh, we took a church and promised we'd take care of it for nine months. Up in the mountains, there was snow, and uh, bears would eat your baby brother and uh, it was cold we didn't have any central heat we lived in a cabin we had an old wood stove and a kitchen stove and you could sit in the bathtub and look through the slats of the bathroom out at the neighbors in their backyard uh, which the walls weren't too good uh, but we were faithful to our post and we won people while we were there and then um, we went to Fresno, we started church, was there two and a half years. Brother Montano now pastors that church. 
Uh, Brother Phillips just preached revival there, told me that four or five got the Holy Ghost. Praise God. Can you say amen? Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And um, then we went to Flint, Michigan. All these places, God has blessed us. God has just, he's just been good. Jesus likes me. I mean, I, that may make you mad, but he does. And I work hard to keep him liking me. You need to buy him some C's candy like my wife does all of our doctors and take it to Jesus and say, take care of this and I just love you and I want to give this to you. And those doctors give us anything we want. It's a wonder we're not drug addicts, but anyway. And um, so we went to Flint, Michigan. We were there for seven years. It was a remarkable run. It was, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how many, literally hundreds and hundreds of people were swept into the church. Brother uh, um, um, Wilbanks is here today. He, uh, my wife won Brother Wilbanks the Lord when he was 15 years old. And uh, half the time when he was at our house, he was stoned on drugs, but she just kept loving him and I kept tolerating him. And, um, and uh, I loved him too. And he came, he got the Holy Ghost, became our youth pastor, was our youth pastor for years and uh, ran a bus route there. He was talking to the guy that helped him run the bus route the other day. Uh, this is now uh, 50 years ago, almost right at it. And, um, and, um, Steve told brother Greg Wilbanks, he said, you know, uh, Greg, the other day I counted up how many people off our bus route are still in the church 45 years later. And he said, I counted 42 people that's still in the church today that we want off that bus route. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You just never know. And, uh, but, but God blessed us. God blessed us. And then I was at harvest time. God blessed us there. We had um, uh, record giving and broke all the mail records. Had a great time, a very short time. But it was a good time. And uh, God uh, blessed us and God helped us. And all that time I was married to this cute chick. And, and, and um, uh, I, it's just a wow woman. I mean, uh, I didn't say wow woman. I said wow woman. But a little of both. But anyway... Um, uh, what, uh, what a run that we've had together. It's just been a lot of wonderful things. And, um, um, it's a, it's a wife who has joined me in living under subjection to the follow me. And, um, uh, she developed her own calling along the way. Uh, and, uh, I have, we have enjoyed together prayers. We've enjoyed together miracles. I have seen her uh, in her life, hundreds of days of fasting, refusing no as an answer, breaking down strongholds, casting out devils. Uh, people are in this church today who are bound by demonic forces who I can remember her getting on the pew in front of them as they sat there frozen, paralyzed, couldn't even say Jesus, uh, and relentlessly uh, refused to let them go until they were delivered. And that's been years ago, and they're still sitting here in this church full of the Holy Ghost, living for God, working for God. Amen. Amen. And she's a model of godliness. Uh, she embraced long before I knew her uh, and loved holiness and separation from the world. Um, she esteems it. She, she, she knows the proper place that this holds in her life. Uh, she holds it as a treasure that it is. Nobody in this church holds the standards out of bondage except they are in bondage of love. And love makes us do what we do with Jesus. And, 
And uh, we're not in legalism, we're in love. Praise God. Now I want to tell you, I want to tell you, my wife doesn't have to worry. She doesn't know where I'm at a lot of the time in my life. I may be driving across town. She don't know the difference. She don't know if I'm with another woman. She don't know what I'm doing. But I'll tell you this much. She knows she don't have to worry about it because we're not in bonds of law. We're in bonds of love. And... Um, and uh, she doesn't paint her face. She doesn't uh, paint her hands or her feet or her fingernails or her hair. And um, uh, it has no power over her. The Bible talks about defiling the flesh. Has no, never had any power over her. She's an example to other people in the church instead of a problem for me in my life. And uh, you can just tell I'm just crazy about this girl. Amen. I'm just, I'm just going off what pastor should have never opened the door of how blessed I am today to be here with, with all of you. And uh, my children live for God. I'm humbled to say there are no divorces, there's no lawyer bills, there's no drug debts. Uh, they don't just act like they're living for God when they're around me. They really live for God. Amen. Doug's sitting over here. Doug's my son-in-law. He's a leader in his own right. He's steady. He's dependable. He's conscientious. He's committed. He's faithful. He loves truth. I mean, what more do you want? God has blessed us with that. I know we're all vulnerable to anything, but right now I'm talking about the blessings of God and how they are. Why shouldn't I be thankful? And you ought to be thinking of a lot of things while I'm talking to how good God's been to you that you have what you have. My God, this is no day to be blaming God or upset or discouraged or distraught. We ought to be thanking God every day of our life for all the good things he's given to us. Come on, let's thank him right now. Woo! Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. And Becky, Becky the fighter, uh, used to be our school principal for years. There's people, school teachers all over this church that really it all started with her and a marriage counselor and an organizer and a leader and and a lover of God and a burning example to thousands of people of refusal to cave into circumstances that are adverse and uh, to continue to move forward through health problems and everything else and is a friend to everybody and a confidant to people you'd never even dream of. And uh, so, I mean, I, I could have witches for kids, but I don't. Praise God. Switches changes witches. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And, um, and then Sheila, uh, Sister Young, is one of the most gifted and proficient leaders anywhere. She never seeks the limelight. She's behind the scenes. She's the driving force of most every process in the Rock Church. She is a consummate counselor to literally hundreds of people that nobody even knows about in the Rock Church and beyond. Is one of the most proficient executives anywhere. Is just finishing up her PhD while she's at the school but one of the people there said, we have a company that does multi-million dollar business. We would like to pull you in as one of the six or seven owners of this company. And she's calling Miles at home and saying, what do I do here? 
and uh, they said, look, you're here for class, but we've got a big meeting in Singapore, I believe it was, and we, you're going to have to go with us because we want to introduce you. She, she said, okay. She didn't even have clothes to go to such a meeting. She had to figure it all out. They flew her with them on a plane to Singapore. There was a billionaire there, millionaires there. All of them were talking about doing world-changing jobs that are impacting whole nations. And uh, she said, well, what do you want me in this for? They said, because you have been exposed to what's going on in the world and you know from your missionary activity of what these things are about and you and the people that you have contact with have access to helping us to do works around the world of setting up leadership seminars, seminars and leadership centers and your people run them and you can use them for church and you can, but we're paying for them and you can do all, I mean... I'm talking about how good God's been. Amen. Amen. And, um, and then, of course, Pastor Young, Miles, uh, I, Miles just makes me laugh. And um, uh, he is the most easily underestimated person in the world. And uh, we used to work out together at uh, the, the same gym, and I would go down there a lot of times, and they would be playing basketball. When they had the guys that weren't real good, I'd play basketball with them. But then they had guys who were ex-NBA guys, ex-world champion team guys, and guys that were presently in the NBA playing, and all these college guys and ex-college guys that were all playing. And uh, I would watch them uh, when, before they got to know him where they would pick him last, uh, uh, but then after they saw him play, they all started picking him first. And uh, I, I repeatedly, uh, I'm shocked at how he finds the mind of the Spirit and has an uncanny giftedness for recognizing opportunity everywhere he goes. Uh, it, and, and this comes from the upbringing, uh, I'm going to try to preach here in a minute, uh, upbringing uh, of his mom and dad who exposed him to all kinds of the world before he was even 18 years old. And um, not the world in the sense of worldliness, but in the sense of, of a world awareness and, and of people and the needs and the kingdom of God. Um, and all of that took hold. Uh, and uh, I talked about his grandpa yesterday that... that Curtis Young's father and all the places that he'd been. Miles was starting a church here in California and um, his grandpa was old by then and was in a rest home in Louisiana and they, he came up missing. They went searching for him. He'd, he would, he'd already lost a little of his uh, uh, ability to think straight and they found him walking down the road in a suit and he had a Louis L'Amour in the back pocket and a Bible under his hand. And they said, where are you going? He said, my grandson's starting a church in California. I'm going to help him. So when you see all these blessings, when you see grandkids that are not third or fourth or fifth, in our case, they would be, in my case, they would be sixth generation Pentecost, but they're really not because God has no grandkids. You have to get it for yourself. And, um, and I see them consecrated in Boston and Haley. No interest in worldly attractions. No interest in worldly dress. No interest in worldly baubles and trinkets. Uh, both of them study the Word of God incessantly, learning everything they can. And here they are. They're no more, they're, 
they're no more equipped than a man in the moon, but they've learned everything they can. And he said, I'm going to start a church. None of us suggested it. None of us encouraged it. None of us hinted to go do it. He just got up one morning and said, I'm going to start a church. Miles asked him, why are you going to start a church? He said, I'm going to start a church. He said, because everybody I know that's worth their salt went and started a church. And he said, I want to be worth something when I get older. And people that start churches end up learning a bunch of stuff. I'm just, talking, I'm just talking about me being blessed. And all of us, by the grace of God, we learn everything that's best that the world has that can be learned with the mind. I mean, don't wait for God to tell you how to fix a lawnmower. Read the Briggs and Stratton manual. So you need to learn everything you can. And, and, um, and so he's in a, some doctoral program, and she's just finishing her master's. We're going to go to celebrate her, her graduation here in another month or so. I'm, I'm excited about that. And, and Lunny, uh, how can a girl that's single, anointed, highly gifted leader, uh, ministry team leader every week in the neediest areas of our city and the most dangerous, never done anything but the work of God, has no desire or inclination for worldly things, um, uh, while others are seeking self-esteem in, in plastic ways uh, and frantically turning to the world, she exudes the unequaled inward glow of the glory of God. That I, I'm just talking about how I'm blessed. You can see why it's easy for me to be thankful for what God's done. Amen. And all the things we've done, that I don't have time to recount them, and all the things we've been for, uh, through and for and, and uh, been a part of, uh, they are just so great. To be a part of Hope Corps, uh, which started in the United Pentecost Church and still goes there as Apostolic Youth Corps. Um, and uh, Hope Corps is an advance on that with a lot more to it. Uh, to be a part of the Bible I'm reading out of today, uh, which is the Premier Study Bible, which is uh, the Premier Study Bible in the world. And um, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be a part of that, uh, to have understanding that God has let us be a part of writing stuff that's been a blessing to other people to be a part of Wilson University which is a which is a critical institution in the last days that you and I are living in in the apostolic movement when it comes to the preservation and advancement of the apostolic church the university plays a critical role uh, I think most of them are here today would you stand up Wilson University staff are you in here somewhere would you stand uh, uh, I don't, right here, here they are, here's right here, amen. Um, uh, let me explain. These, these people are all brainiacs. They're, they're highly uh, intelligent, they're, but they're highly spiritual. Uh, the whole Wilson International work that's going on is Brother Allard here today. He is the director of that, Dr. Steve Allard. Would you stand, Brother Allard? Uh, you're back here somewhere, somebody said, um, uh, wherever he's at. Uh, we were in a session, and, uh, and Sister Anna Ballinger, this is just an example of how it goes. She walks in, she sits down in the conference room, and she says, uh, uh, Brother Wilson, I was praying. I feel like God gave me an answer on the Wilson International makeup of courses, how we can get them to them, even if they don't have a uh, computer feed like we have here in America. And all of that started. Her and Dr. Allen and others worked on it, and uh, it's going now. There are scores of people that are being taught around the world that never had access to this before, and before it's over, there's going to be thousands of them. Uh, and all the other things that these people are doing. You could put them up against the, in the world, at the world's 
best, the table where the world's great ideas and best efficiency people are found. And these people right here can hold their own with anybody. I'm proud of them and I love them very much. Amen. And Brother Brian's not here because he's at Harvard finishing his master's degree at Harvard. And um, he's also part of that team. And then uh, to be a part, I'm, I'm just telling you why I'm blessed. Brother Young started this, and I'm just taking, before I preach here for a couple hours, I just want to give you a little 60 second. Uh, and um, to be a part of the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most wonderful things in the world. I have, I, I've never seen things happening so fast and so good and so smooth and so anointed as I'm watching take place in the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. Amen. I'm not one ounce embarrassed to tell you that it is doing things and has an orbit that's probably 50 times bigger than it is, uh, that people are finding direction and power and to be a part of a fellowship of people. If you're in other fellowships, I love you too, and I love them. But I'm glad, uh, I'm blessed, and I thank God that he is helping us and blessing us, that we are able to pursue a preferred future instead of looking at the future as a fated future that cannot be changed. And that's one of the hallmarks of the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. And of course, I'm glad to be a part of No Limits. No Limits. Praise God. I'm I was one of the founded members of West Coast Conference. I was one of the founded members of Landmark, and, I, and, and, and I'm glad to be a founding member of No Limits. Uh, I'm glad I'm here today. I'm glad the Holy Ghost is here today. I'm glad you and I are here today. We're preaching the same old doctrine, the same powerful truth, amen, that we started with a long time ago. Praise God. I think we ought to just stand up for a minute and clap our hands and thank God for his blessings to all of us that are here today. Oh, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And so when I think about uh, how my ministry has been uh, blessed of God because Jesus likes me, um, all I've done is I've tried to, in my own way, to follow my spiritual mentor. Everybody ought to have a spiritual mentor. I've got many, but the primary, initial, original, foundational, grounding mentor in my life was Verbal Bean, uh, who was uh, an evangelist and um, uh, who by uh, himself put on his shoulders a whole movement and carried it to heights of revival that it had not known since the early days of the 20th century. And so there's a, the world is big and there's room for all of us to be as big as we can be without interfering with one another and we need to think that way. And I don't think it's all peaked I think that the biggest projects of victory are just over the next hill and are just now coming into being. And you and I are in the kingdom of God at a time like no other. And if you're in it today, you need to say, thank God I got in in the juiciest, richest time a person could ever be in the apostolic church of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. And so... Um, I'm thankful for all of that. So today, um, uh, that's the context from which I'm preaching what I'm preaching. I'm not speaking for anybody else today. I'm not speaking for the WPF. I'm not speaking for the No Limit sponsors. Everybody has to decide who he or she will listen to 
um, as role models or coaches or mentors or uh, to find a prophetic word. Uh, uh, however, I will tell you that I am not by choice a teacher of commonplace leadership. I am a teacher even uh, to the point of that I cannot yet attain, but I'm working at it, of world-class leadership. I don't apologize for that. I do not think the apostolic movement as we know it will survive without such leadership. I think we're in days of dire spiritual dearth, not in this meeting, but across the country. And I believe that such leadership is essential for the preservation and advancement of the church. And so um, uh, we're in a group uh, in the Bible. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. And we're in Bible greats live differently than time people. They lived in deeds, not in years. They lived in revelations, not in how many breaths they took. Uh, they lived in eternal feelings and goals, not a uh, minute controlling gadget on the wall with numbers. Those things are not the things that drove them. And uh, world-class leader John the Baptist taught us this, uh, that one crowded hour of a glorious life uh, is worth more than an age without spiritual identity. And, uh, uh, and, and so there was none greater up to the time of John than he, and though he had a very short ministry. So I'm preaching to you for a few minutes today what I've studied and prayed over for thousands of hours, have observed and experienced and, and obsessed over over the years um, uh, I'm woefully short of where I personally want to be, uh, but today I'm dealing in essentials that I know, not in those that I theorize about, for a world-class apostolic leader. And it all starts around two two-word phrases which are forever attached. And those two phrases, one of them is a directive, and that directive is follow me. And the other is the response to that directive, which is forsaking all. And in doing this, it's a sobering thought that both of those directives are tied to obedience to the one that you call master and to whom you claim to be a disciple. And so I don't believe there's any shortcuts to this. Uh, the large role of follow me in the Bible may surprise you. It is a very large role. Uh, let me just take a moment to show you some of the places without elaborating on them to any extent, any great extent. Uh, we just read Matthew chapter 4 verse 19 which he said, follow me, and uh, they did so. But he also mentions it in Matthew 8, 22. Jesus said unto him, follow me. And the context in which he said that was that a man said, I will follow you, but uh, uh, first let me go bury my dead relative. And Jesus said, no, let the dead bury the dead. Whatever that means, it means if you've got the follow me on you, you don't go back to bury the dead. We know it means that much. And uh, so it shows us that there's an immediacy to the call. It's not something that you ponder and decide, well, maybe I will or maybe I won't. Uh, there's also an urgency to it. There's an impatience to it on the part of our Lord. And nothing is allowed to stand between the follow me and obedience. Uh, and then uh, in a similar context, Luke 9, 61, Jesus said, follow me. And the, the guy said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus stopped and said, no, no man that put a his hand to the plow and look at back is worthy, uh, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
which shows us again the idea that when the follow me finally intersects with your life, when it crosses the road that you're walking on, when the past certainly has the follow me tree falling across it and you have to either leave or crawl over or decide to be obedient to follow the new path. Uh, uh, there is not intended in God's thinking at all for there to be any reservation. Matthew 9 and 9, Jesus passed thence and he saw a man called Matthew and said, follow me. And he arose and followed. Again, uh, no tolerance for extended decision making. Again, immediacy is the watchword. Matthew 16, 24. I'm just kind of rambling through these scriptures here in an introduction. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so, um, and so here we see that following him is going to run counter to our concepts of security. And uh, it's going to be abandoning some things. And it's going to create uh, some difficulties to accept uh, uh, it's going to mess up one's plans. It's going to mess up one's carefulness with what they have already plotted out for their lives. Uh, and then there's Matthew 18, 21. Jesus said unto him, If thou be perfect, talking to the rich young ruler, go and sell that that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And so there's a couple things we see here. It was a young man. And it was obvious that neither his wealth nor his status satisfied him. So I'm preaching today to people that I'm hoping and I believe that in your heart there is something that no matter what you've accomplished, no matter what your dreams are, there is something in you that still says, uh, I'm not fulfilled. I need to hook to something that will give me that, that sense that I know I'm on the right path. And so... Uh, this young man also lets us know that there is degrees of purity uh, in following. Uh, everybody, everybody is not at the same place. There is a following that is mixed with other that people can get involved in, and I'll talk about in just a few minutes. But then there is a distilled following where if you squeeze it out, it has been distilled to the point that you will find nothing but obedience in the follow me uh, of that particular person. And so you've got to understand with the rich young ruler that this will disrupt this, the follow me will disrupt past understandings. It will disrupt present actions. It will disrupt future plans. This young man refuses. He's gone a long ways, but he won't go all the way. It shows you the problem with degrees, the attempt to make degrees enough, and then the refusal of Jesus to accept that. And so when the young man refuses to go further, this is what Dante called uh, the great refusal, the great refusal of this young man. And so we could go on and, and, and show some other places there about follow me. Uh, John 20, 21, uh, notice this, lest I forget it later, that the first follow me is almost at the very beginning of the book of Matthew. The last follow me is in the last chapter of the book of John, which is the last of uh, the four Gospels. Uh, and so we have now bookcased between the beginning and between the end that the follow me is an issue forever. The follow me problem, the follow me 
challenge, the follow me reality never goes away. And from the day that you meet the follow me, your life will never be the same. I am preaching to people right now that are not obeying the follow me. I know people, I'm thinking of people that love God, but they have not obeyed the follow me. And they are doing things that work adversarially to the fulfillment of the follow me. They are good people. They're people I love. They're people I will always love. They're people I will never mistreat. But none of that matters when you get to this. There is an incorrigible edge to the follow me that accepts nothing. Nothing more or less rather than, than absolute, unequivocal, total abandonment in obedience and faith that Jesus Christ is worthy to be followed with all of the heart and mind and soul and obedience. And if you're not there, I'm preaching to you today because you have to get there if you're ever going to know anything about world class. Now, if you don't want to know about world class and you just want to be somebody on the road, I don't know who goes to heaven. I don't know how, what degree of obedience you've got to have to be saved. I know there's some scriptures that scare me to death about being so, not being sold out uh, and what's going to happen to you. I don't know about all that. The reason I don't know is I'm not into common leadership. I'm into world class leadership. You'll have to get some common leadership teacher to talk to you about that and, 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 and salve your conscience about that. So in my text in Matthew chapter 4, this first follow me passage impacted me when I first started preaching and I was in my early 20s. This, this passage out of all the passages uh, is the most uncluttered. It is the cleanest. It's unfettered with a lot of detail. It's a description of the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John who were working people. It starts with Peter and Andrew casting their nets. They were industrious. They had a business. They knew how to catch fish. They knew how to maintain a boat. They knew how to navigate the sea. They knew how to keep the books. And they knew weather patterns and the impact on the fish. It consumed their life to learn all of this over a period of years. They know where to take the catch when they make it. They know how to negotiate a price. They know the value of stuff. Uh, they know how to work together. They were partners in this. Working in partnership is a different deal than working uh, by yourself. They knew that. They were responsible people. It's seen in the fact that they were uh, mending their nets and washing them at the end of the uh, fishing day, taking care of them. There was evidently not a big generation gap because Zebedee, the dad of James and John, is out there with them. And um, in this... Uh, uh, it was probably Zebedee's business originally and maybe the father of Peter and Andrew who we do not know uh, uh, but now these boys have got this business and here comes Jesus he comes by and he says follow me and immediately they follow him so then they're probably thinking how are we going to establish this kingdom that we're following this guy are we going to go through um, are we going to go through Palestine and are we going to are we going to raise all the common people and the peasants to get their sticks and their stones and their and their pitchforks and let's make an assault on Rome and take the scepter from Caesar how are we going to do this the Bible says James and John left their boat and Zebedee was there in the boat and they they immediately left the boat 
I can't imagine Zebedee not looking around and saying, what in the world is going on? Hey, where are you guys going? Hey, this is some fool's journey. You guys haven't even figured out what you're doing, and you're going to follow this guy. Come on back here. But they don't come back. They are, they are caught in the follow me, and, um, and they, just, they just keep on going. And so when you look at this story, the most important words uh, are what I pointed out earlier in the context of this message is the word straightway and the word immediate because those are, uh, those are the most important words there. And when you are not immediate, immediate, immediate has the same meaning as unmediated. M means without mediation. Immediate, that's why when they just, they just got up and went. That's why when it says they immediately did it, it means they got up and went without mediating it through the grid of something else that, that, that stood between obedience. They just, they just did it immediately. And, uh, and uh, when you mediate it through something else, um, it, it's not going to work. That's not how it works. And so here's enemies to, um, there's enemies to the follow me that don't mean to be enemies. The, there are wives and moms and dads that are enemies to the immediacy of the follow me. They work against the risk that's involved. Uh, they love their children, and so they look to what seems to be chronological security. And so they work against what it takes to be world-class ministry. And so I find myself positioned against these wives and parents, uh, mothers and fathers, uh, when it comes to their children. Uh, I don't mean that we're ugly. I just mean we're on two different sides. Uh, they want success in God's work, but they want it mediated uh, through programs that the flesh thinks provide security for their kids uh, rather than for them to step head first into the work of God. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm standing on the other side saying, you're making a mistake with your kid. You're making a mistake with your life. You've got it all wrong. You think you know more than the man of God. You need to hush. My mom used to say hush. You need to hush. The worst word I won't say. But you need to hush and learn that you don't know half of what the preacher knows about following. You don't know half of what I'm preaching about today. But you'll take your kids and you'll hide them from the preacher. And you'll move them where they're not at the youth service. Uh, and you'll move them where the influence of the ministry because you don't want the kids to be exposed to the terror and the horrors that come with people that just take the leap in the, in the great follow me. And so I watch people work. They want things mediated. I watch little wives who want success in God's work, but they only want it through guarantees that she will be taken care of first. And so she steers her man away from the influence of the risk takers, those who are living in the extremely deep waters. She doesn't know anything about the spirit of Hannah who had no child, wanted a child as bad as all of you women I'm preaching to, finally got the child. It was a comely child. It was a beautiful baby boy. She nurses him and raises him up, and then when he's four years old, she takes him back. Think about her heart. Think about her feelings. Think about the, 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 the 
uh, familial ligatures that holds her to that child, uh, a mother and her baby. And she, she's, she's walking him. Where are we going, Mommy? We're going to the temple. What are we going to do there? I'm going to introduce you to Eli. Who is Eli? Eli is the priest. What am I going to do with Eli? He's going to take care of you for a while. Where are you going to be, Mommy? And with tears running down her face, she said, I'm going to be at home. But I want you to be something. And God gave you to me, baby. Sammy, I've got to tell you, God gave you to me, and I'm going to give you back to God. But you don't get that. You hold your baby. You stay out of church with your baby when you don't need to. You don't want your kid to get too close to the ministry. You pull your husband away from the ministry so that he will get a good job and work somewhere. But you don't want him taking the gambles and the risk that people like I and the others here have taken. You want some kind of security that's not real security. And I am sick of it. And I am preaching to you today. And I am telling you, repent before it is too late. Come on, let's pray for a minute. Those boys, they didn't ask their parents. They didn't ask their wives. They didn't consult with their CPA. And so she drops her baby off. And he grows up. Samuel grows up. I don't know anybody else in the Bible except Jesus that it says he was perfect. Even as a man, a perfect man, he grows up to be a world changer. But if his mama had her way when she was carnal, she would have never given him. So when you read Matthew chapter 4, it's a slick version. Uh, it's, it tells the truth, but it tells it in a refined form as though too much space is not given to the details. And, it, and, it, and I love it because it just looks like Jesus walks by and they've never seen him before. And he looks and says, follow me. And the power of that magnetic voice. They drop everything in hypnotic fashion and they follow him. That's kind of how Matthew presents it. But when you go to Luke, Luke lets us know. He turns the prism and he lets, see a, uh, lets us see a bit more of what occurred. And Luke's version, which found uh, we may have turned to it, but right now, don't please, just for the sake of time. Luke chapter 5, whereas in Matthew 4, it looks all clean and slick, but in 
Luke, he lets us know it was a process of working through a lot of things to obey the follow me. And so he gives the setting, which is the Sea of Galilee, what the Jews call the most sacred sheet of water on the earth. It's not very big. It's six miles by 12 miles. It's shaped like a pear. Genesaret is a sea or lake. Genesaret is, Genesaret is a kind of a evolved form of the Greek, of the Hebrew word for pear, because it's pear-shaped. Um, and in a way, Galilee was a secluded world. But in another way, it was not, because the old spice road from China, from Asia, to Europe had a leg that came off. It ran across the top above Israel, but it had a leg that came down and it went right by the Sea of Galilee. And so this is one of the reasons why Galileans uh, in many ways were unfettered by the prejudices of the people around Jerusalem. And Christ's ministry found no favor as great as he found in Galilee. It's the same place that Isaiah and Matthew, they use this interesting term, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, like talking about the spice road maybe and the way of the sea. It's also interesting that the Bible, that was the land that Zebulun and Naphtali had settled in, <clears throat> and it says they settled there by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's also the one where the scripture says these are the ones that had set in great darkness. But then in a prophetic form of talking about Jesus coming, it's also the one that says they are the ones that have seen a great light. And so there he came to that spot to preach the gospel. Many of you have been there. It was on the northwest side of the lake. Uh, it's a beautiful and accessible tableland area that kind of slants up towards the hills. Beyond it, it is beautiful. It's shaped like a half moon. It's, um, it's protected on the north and west side from the wind by the mountains. It's exposed to the sun. I've stood there and looked at it and pondered it uh, a number of times. It's extremely fruitful. And so here's Jesus teaching in this small secluded area that uh, is hardly aware of its significance and hardly aware of what's going on that it is, corrected, it is connected by the great highway uh, to the world. And from here, the propagation of the message of Jesus will become universal. And it all starts right here in this little session that Luke 5 is, re, is recording. Jesus here is preaching. He's teaching and preaching. And um, I, I don't have time to talk about the power of preaching, but um, it's another subject for another day. But there is nothing like the power of preaching. Can you say amen? And uh, I've read accounts 17 centuries ago uh, in the streets of Constantinople when Chrysostom was, was preaching. Uh, the streets were so filled. The streets were filled with people as he preached, stood on a, a, a die of some kind and preached to them. Um, I've read about John, uh, about um, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who every day at lunchtime, 5,000 people would stand uh, come and fill and then some of them stand outside of the tabernacle to hear him preach on their lunch hour. He would prepare something and preach to people 
and they would fill the tabernacle in the streets. Uh, I've read about John Wesley. He said in his diary, I was invited to preach at such and such a church. They were all Church of England. And he said, I went there on that Sunday morning, but I was refused because the powers that be had told him I couldn't preach there. He said, the next Sunday I was invited to preach over at this church. And he said, I went to preach. And he said, but when I got there, the powers had heard that I'd been invited. And they said I could not. They refused to let me preach there. He said, the next week I went over here. And he goes through five weeks of that. And he's refused uh, all five weeks. He said, on the fifth week I went to such and such a church where I had been invited by the locals to preach. And he said, I went. And uh, the powers that be had stopped it, and he said they wouldn't let me preach. And it's like he took a big breath. <sighs> he said, so I went into the graveyard that was attached to the church and began to preach, and 8,000 people came to hear me preach. The power of preaching is not over in 2021. The power of preaching... If your preaching is ineffective, it may be because you've lost faith in it. But if you understand what you're doing when you're preaching the Word of God and that you are prepared and that you're anointed, preparation includes anointing, and prayed and you're ready and you're ready to take on the evil spirits that are going to walk in that building and you're ready to take on the depressing spirits and you're ready to, you're ready to take authority over the mood of that entire service uh, where there's not going to be no discouragement in that service uh, because you're going to preach the hell out of that place uh, until everything in there is nothing left but heaven uh, and the power and presence of God. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You may be seated. So all of this is going on. All of the hustle and bustle, the silk trains, the leaders, the soldiers with their flashing helmets and armor and, and Jesus teaching several thousand people on the hillside. It's a major buzz. And um, it's, a, it's an exciting place to be. But for one man, for one man, this scene quickly telescopes from general to individual. And it becomes personal to the extreme. And the reason I say that it is because it is the day that Peter met the follow me. That's the day. So with Peter we find out there's complications. The first complication to the follow me is his boat. His work's interrupted by the preaching. He's cleaning nets on the side of the sea. His boat, perhaps without his permission evidently, is appropriated by the preacher. And his boat being confiscated as though the teacher owns it. There's two things you've got to remember when you do that to a craftsman. There's two things a craftsman hates. Don't mess with his tools. He may let you use them, but you can feel him saying, I wish they'd just get out of my shop. Especially if it's somebody like me. And... The other thing is, don't mess with a man's work processes. He has a way of doing things. He has a system of doing things. So if he's washing the nets, that's connected to everything else. And so Jesus says to Peter, he stops everything, and he tells Peter, push this boat out a ways. Now, Peter's got to go back to the water and push the boat out 
ways. So Jesus can teach. He may have been saying, it's my boat. I don't want it out. But you're forcing me. And so the boat is becoming an issue to the follow me. And then once the boat's out there, he can't get the nets back in it until Jesus finishes teaching. And so now he's got to stand there and listen until he can get his boat pulled back in and get the nets put back in it. In the meantime, he has to leave the nets laying on the shore. And there's people tromping everywhere. And so the boat becomes an issue to the follow me. And probably all the men who are in business while Jesus is standing there teaching, in this case we know it was the four, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, uh, such a congregation in the middle of the day doesn't seem like the right thing to do anyway. We've got work to do. Uh, we're losing time. You are an inconvenient interference. Uh, we have to work to feed our families. We've got to go back out tonight. We need to get home. Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to meet all your requests, sir. You're interrupting the flow and the rhythm, the long-established fisherman way. You're interrupting this. Now, Matthew didn't give us any of this, but Luke opens the door to all of this. Uh, and he's waiting patiently to throw the nets back in the boat so he can go to the house. And then he's got to go back out again in a few hours. Uh, and he's already tired. He's been up all night, and he's been uh, unsuccessful, which makes you more tired. And he's got things to do in between. And instead of being able to do that, when he patiently waits and the sermon's finally over and he breathes a sigh of relief and he says, man, I get my boat now if you'll just get out of the thing. And then Jesus turns and looks at him and says, launch out into the deep. And now it's 1130 in the morning. If he don't get home, he's going to get no sleep before that night. And so when he says launch out into the deep, he's already commandeered the ship. He's already made himself at home. He sat down in the thing in Simon, right in the middle of Simon Peter's world. Uh, and now uh, the command to launch out into the ship, uh, it is definitely, although Peter doesn't yet see it, it is a chirological moment in his life uh, that is couched in finite frustration. Uh, you've got to get that. It is the moment of destiny for him but it's couched in a moment of finite frustration and every time you feel frustrated and you're feeling the touch of God you've got to be very careful because the frustration will become sin and it'll mess you up and it'll take you down the wrong road and so you've got to shut your mouth and say master the best I can do right now is be quiet and so the whole process and I will tell you, it's never changed. The whole process of the follow me is interruptive. It's inconvenient. It's upsetting. It's unapologetic. It's presumptive. You don't know what's going to happen if you follow. And so after the whole teaching session, now he commands launch out into the deep. With Jesus, the scenario always goes to the deep. This is not a shallow water outfit, can you say amen? And then he says, let down your nets for a draught. A draught, draught means a haul. And so for Peter, this means now I'm going to have to rewash and refold. I'm exhausted, been up all night. I'll get no sleep before I go back out. And so he finally responds like a fisherman. And he said, 
He probably said it with a little attitude. Jordan, where are you at? Singing, Jordan, singing, Jordan. You sang? Come up here for just a second, real quick. And so, Jesus says to Peter, this is going to be Peter Jordan. He says to Peter, launch out into the deep. And Peter says, Master, we have toiled all night. Master, we've toiled all night. Ah, oh, that ain't how he said it. <laughs> I want you to, I want you to give me a little edge. Peter, launch out into the deep. Master, we've toiled all night. That's a little better. <laughs> when you say it this time, do I have to act out everything? Stay right here. When you said this time, kind of turn away like, oh, God. You know, I, I want a little attitude. And then you turn back and say, Master, we toiled all night. Peter, launch out into the deep. We've been out here all night. Stay right there. The next word you're going to say in a minute is nevertheless. So what did Jesus do? He just stands there. And the, and the silent pause gets longer until finally... Nevertheless, 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 I want to tell you that you're not quite done yet. The, (laughs) The nevertheless finally comes. But before it comes, it's the boat or the follow me. This is what's at stake. It's for fish or it's for men. It's for a life in the shallows, which much of the apostolic movement lives in, or it's in the deep. It's going to be secular first or it's going to be spiritual first. It's going to be a decision for today's world or tomorrow's world. And it's going to be for finite preservation or for infinite purpose. Nevertheless, at thy word, energy, beat apart, yelling. Nevertheless, at thy word. You got it. You got it. Now, it doesn't tell that in Matthew. But Luke's given us the the bigger picture at thy word <laughs> Peter's first saying I would we've toiled all night and he's pitting his word against the Lord's word that's all for now we may do it again Jordan I don't know if, if, if I start get, if it starts getting a little boring I'll call you back up here and we'll entertain people again <laughs> but then he thinks about it a little bit you know, I got a lot of people that, 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 that 
I, I mean, like, Peter, all he's ever done is fish on this little six by 12 puddle. I mean, I live in California. I don't know how many hundreds of Sea of Galilee's you could put in Clear Lake. But it'd be a bunch of them. And this is what this boy's known. And yet he is pitting his opinion. We have toiled all the night. Well, the, the response to you is, so what? What do you know, bub? He created the night. He created the wood for the boat. He created the water. He created the fish. He, you don't get it. It's a chirological moment. It's not just you deciding whether you're going to take your little man home and make a little puppet eight to five out of him or not. It's a matter of whether or not you know what's really going on in this situation or not. And when Peter said, nevertheless, at thy word, just reading that made me say, yes! Peter, you just stepped into consonance with all the arrangements of the ages. Peter, your net obeys the one who regulates the planets. And I want to tell you, Simon Peter's little bell of obedience on this little old lake when he said, nevertheless, at thy word, that little bell's sound, the little bell of obedience rings out with the everlasting chimes of eternity. That's how important your nevertheless at thy word obedience is, young man and young woman. That's how much that means. It's a world-class call. It demands a world-class response I won't be able to preach all this today but I do want to tell you I'm 74 years old and I spent a lot of time with people who were less than willing to make the commitment to world class because you keep hoping but at this point in life I don't have any interest in managing mediocrity when you come to your impacting moment of personal spirituality you can conjure up young ruler excuses. Let me tell you something else. How the impacting moment of personal spirituality is encountered the first time makes a lot of difference. And when you've got people who are casual about this and whose priorities are already established before they ever hear the call and they're locked in place, and they've opted for security over the faith life, which is really a pseudo-security. I'm just telling you as a student of student formation and a teacher of world-class leadership, there is a period of time in your life, if I don't get anything else out tonight, today, this afternoon, I want to get this out. There is a period of time in your life that is sacrosanct. There is no other period of time in your life like this period of time. I'm talking about the age of between 10 or 11 and 25. It is the golden space in which there's none other like it. 
and all things in life, both, both physical and spiritual, conspire for initial learning and training and grasping and growing in those general years. Youth is the optimum period for spiritual formation. If you got saved later, it can happen then, but the optimum period is spiritual formation. It's like the wonderful man of God. I was teaching here a while back and a, and a, a long ways from here, and a wonderful man of God who I love dearly turned to me at the break and with tears in his voice, he said, Brother Wilson, I would to God I'd have heard this when I was 19. He said, I've wasted 50 years. Well, you and I know he didn't waste it if he's working for God, but I know what he means. I know what he means. He wished somewhat he would have, would have talked about this and challenged him, and I don't have any doubt he would have been one that would have responded the right way. And so, let me talk to you parents, you who have children that are developing career skills, and you're, you're encouraging them to do that, then you're going to say they can go ahead and do the study and the applied living required for spiritual formation. That doesn't mean they're going to backslide if they do that. It doesn't mean I don't like them, because I'll love them. It doesn't mean I'm criticizing them. But here's what it does mean. It means you have pretty much traded the opportunity to be world-class for the opportunity for finite security. And it manifests some things that are of concern. It's for certain that you can't be both because man cannot serve God and security, mammon. And I would say to you parents, listen to me closely, you are taking into your hands, your own two hands, the once in a lifetime golden period of opportunity and lifting it up in sacrifice to the gods of the secular rather than the God of the Bible because your actions belie that you don't have faith that God will take care of those that he calls and that it's going to take every minute of that golden period applied to the Word of God and applied to spiritual things and apostolic dynamics uh, for them to ever become world class. But you're going to put them behind and they're going to be limping along with a big bank account the rest of their life, rotting out the great potential that they had because of the mistakes that you are making encouraging them to go that route. I am well aware that what I'm preaching runs countercultural to everything this world says. But I am in a countercultural kingdom, and I know what I'm talking about, and I know God won't forsake people that obey his call. Well, let's thank him for his faithfulness. And before I close, let me say, Somebody may be asking, well, what is this golden period of opportunity from 10 or 12 to 25? And what can you tell us about this time? Well, there's some, a lot of things I can't tell you, but there's, this is what I can tell you. It has a limited shelf life. Rich young ruler, all moments are not equal. Your clock has ticked. This moment will never be the same after, and it was never before. You are encountering the intersection of the follow me with the pattern of your previous life. What are you going to do with it? 
So the first thing is it doesn't have a permanent shelf life. You can't get up one morning and yawn and say, I believe I'll go do the follow me. You got to do the follow me with immediacy. Nothing in between. The second thing I can tell you is it has a distinct character to it. And it's like um, Matthew 7, 14. We apply it to salvation and, and appropriately so. But it also applies, many scriptures that apply to salvation also apply to spiritual growth, spiritual formation and transformation. But the scripture that I just said, Matthew 7, 14. <coughs> thank you. <laughs> because straight is the gate and narrow is the way. That scripture is not describing the entirety of the Christian life. That scripture is describing the entry. The entry. Enter. The word enter is in there. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads in the life. Few there be that find it. But the verse before it or after it says, those that enter. It's talking about entrance. That scripture also applies to spiritual uh, formation. It applies to uh, the great follow me. And when you do that, it is a, it, you enter there. It doesn't mean that your whole life after that is some constricted, narrow uh, something. Because it's the very opposite of that. But it means to get into that. You can't come in just laughing, cutting up, and eating your donut. You, this, this is a, the, the entryway is straight. And the way is narrow. The gate, gate, gate. That implies entry. It, it, it's, it's compressed. It's contracted. Uh, it crowds in on you. There's not room for carrying anything in with you. Uh, this is the nature this is the nature of the follow me. It, it doesn't allow, but you say, but I've got interest. I've got loved ones. I've got this. I've got the, all of those things I've already went through. It doesn't matter what you have. You have to say, I will follow. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will follow you. I need to get away from this, but I want to tell you, this is a period of rare, tender, unspoiled, virgin soil and there's an apostolic man that just wrote a book a couple three years ago I don't know not too long ago he's a good man I'm sure the book has good things in it it was about bivocational ministry and I believe there's places for bivocational ministry and I believe there's situations and I've done bivocational ministry but when you do that just remember Ecclesiastes said the preacher who was king. Bivocational. It doesn't say the king who was preacher. So bivocational never means that vocation is first and preacher is second. The preacher who was king. He had it right. But I got to leave all that alone because I'm just preaching about world-class apostolic young men and women. And when I leave all that alone, I come back to, I don't know of any that had any semblance of permanent bivocationality. They may have stopped and picked cotton a day off or something or built a tent or whatever they did. 
but they left all that behind. And God provided for them, and he said, anybody that leaves, father, mother, sister, husband, wife, whatever, I'll give them a hundredfold. That's his promise. And so they leave there. I had a couple guys in my church. Short story. They had very good jobs. They both have passed on. They're both precious men. Till the day they died. I believe they're saved. I'm not the keeper of that book, but I believe in my book, you know, my reasoning, I'd say absolutely. They were preachers in the church. Both of them told me. They had good jobs. They said, when... He said, Brother Wilson, what I'm doing is I, I, I'm able to get retirement at 55. They were probably 45 at the time. I don't know, something like that. They said, when I get retirement, um, I'll be able to take care of myself, and I'm gonna, we're going to go uh, uh, preach in these home mission churches that can't afford people to preach for them. And it won't cost anything. And so the, the rationale was is that I'm taking care of my secular security first for the sake of the follow me. Okay, then I was young, now I'm old. And they are gone. And I saw them after they retired. I saw what they did after they retired. I love everything that they did. I gave them credit for every sermon they preached. But it's a long ways from where they were after retirement to what I'm talking about today. There was no semblance of earth-shaking world class. There was no semblance of saying, I only have one life. And by the grace of God, nothing's going to keep me from just giving it all to him. And I married a woman that did the same thing. So you better make sure you're marrying a woman that does the same thing. You're talking about a woman, you better be, you better be checking that woman's consecration out. And you girls the other way, you can get a man that's a lot worse than being single. I got the Holy Ghost under a girl that was 29 years old preaching, riding the Greyhound bus with a, with, a, uh, with a suitcase, was single. She came and preached revival at our church, and I got the Holy Ghost. Later on in life, in her 30s somewhere, late 30s uh, somewhere, she got married. But, but I'm just going to tell you, the call, the follow me, uh, you better sell the field and buy the treasure. There's nothing like that. And I close with a little bit about John 21. Just let me tell you the story instead of trying to get into all of it. Jesus has resurrected and he told them, go back to Galilee. They saw him in Jerusalem. They saw him a couple of times, but he said, go back to Galilee and I will meet you there. They have gone back to Galilee. Peter has denied him three times. 
Peter doesn't know if he's still in fellowship. He goes back to Galilee, maybe out of obedience and maybe because that's where he lived and had nowhere else to go. He goes back. When he gets back, Jesus isn't there. He waits a day and Jesus doesn't show up. He waits another day and Jesus doesn't show up. And all this is pressing against the follow me. Finally, he feels abandoned. He's not coming. He feels a failure. I'm a failure. He hates himself. So in that low moment, you know what he says? He looks at six of the other apostles that are with him. And he said, I go fishing. There is no record that he has been fishing since Matthew 4. In fact, Jesus explicitly told them, quit the fishing business. I filled the boat to show you that's the kind of men. Your little fishing boat's not big enough for the world ministry I want to give you. It's bigger than the boat and bigger than getting James and John's boat. It's bigger than both your boats. But he says, I go fishing. He's at the bottom of the barrel. And here's a problem. When someone who has leadership potential reverts back, they don't stop being a leader. And the other six look and say, we go with you. You read it. And they're all out fishing. It's nighttime. Peter takes his coat off. He just got a little old t-shirt like thing on. He's working out there. They toil all night and they don't catch anything. Sun begins to rise. Somebody is on the shore in the fog and says, guys, have you caught anything? If you read your Bible, they did not explain. They didn't do anything. The, 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 the silence is deafening. They said one two-letter word. They said, no. They were not a happy bunch. They were in a quandary. He said the exact same thing in John 21 that he said in Luke 5. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Same nets, just casting them a different way. That preach. And they cast them on the other side of the net. They get a catch bigger than they can pull in the boat. They just drag the net with the fish. And John, who's always more perceptive than anybody else, whispers to Peter, they don't know who it is. And John says, it is the Lord. And Peter, the only man that's jumped into the deep and walked on it for the second time, jumps in the boat, out of the boat and into the water and swims about 100 yards until he gets to shore because he knows 
He doesn't know whether he'll be accepted, but he knows there's no other hope but the call. Some of you spent your time getting that boat, getting talking people into getting in that boat with it, with you, the boat of the old natural desire for security over faith. Peter gets to shore. They bring the fish up. Jesus says, bring the fish. There's already fish on the fire. All of, they don't know that all this has eternal implications. The fish on the fire represents the Old Testament. The, the new fish represents the much greater catch here at the New Testament. And there's fish on the fire. Peter, this has implications to the day of Pentecost. The Bible says when they got the fish net up close enough, Peter must have been an incredibly physically strong man because the Bible's explicit that Peter grabbed the net by himself and drug it to shore with 153 really good fish. It's a universal thing. Somebody said that they, at that time they accounted that there was 153 different kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee, which represented all the fish of the world that they were going to be catching if they followed the follow me. And they get there. He's got the food. I wish I knew the whole conversation. They're all talking. Peter's uncertain. They're all uncertain. The Lord speaks to Peter <clears throat> three times, which probably is a corollary to the three denials. Three denials, three affirmations. He does it around a fire, which is probably a corollary to he denies around a fire. He affirms around a fire. And here he is. Lovest thou me more than these? Now theologians wonder what the these are. Some think it was the other apostles. Mm -mm. There's no doubt in my mind that he said, Lovest thou me, Peter, more than these? The nets, the boat, the fish, the sea. You came back and got your boat. And theologians will tell you that it's almost certain that when they come back and got in the boat, it was Peter's boat. So which way? Now, Peter, do you love me more than all these? Yes, Lord. Peter's answer was kind of weak. Not because he didn't mean it, but it was kind of weak because... He was ashamed after being such a loud mouth about he would never leave him. He said, yes, Lord. He asked him again and again. Yes, Lord. So here he is back in his first temptation. And it's the same thing over again. <clears throat> Quartet had a little tour a couple weeks ago, and we sang it Denham Springs, Louisiana. That's close to 
Brother Spell's home, same city, basically suburb. His boy, his 14-year-old boy Judah came over and his son Tim, Tim Spell, then Tim Jr., then grandson is Judah, Tony's boy. I said, hey, how you doing, Judah? What's going on? We talked a little bit. And then somebody told me, Judah, last week or two, taught his first home Bible study. He didn't know how to teach it. But Tim, his uncle, the singer Tim Spell's boy, who's 40 years old or whatever, he said, Judah, I'll go with you. And don't worry about it. If you get a little hung up, I'll tell you. I'll help you through it. And so they went and taught some center woman a Bible study in her home. And when he would get going too fast, Tim would kind of say, hold on just a minute, Judah. What that means, da 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 But Judah at 14 taught it. The lady came to church and got baptized and got the Holy Ghost. He's teaching another one now. What will he be by the time he's 16 if he keeps going? Ricky Treese preached his first revival when he was 14 years old. He averaged preaching six minutes a night. A lot of people would love that evangelist. just saying I could I got a list there I could give you a lot of other names Ben are you here Ben Rodriguez where you at come up here real quick with me Ben is working with his dad in Mexico and his mom and his brothers but he's out of this church he's been here for years grew up here teenager worked here Went over here to Pleasant Grove High School. That's where he went to school. Started teaching Bible studies over there and brought, I don't know, 50 high school students to church here. Some of them got the Holy Ghost. Some of them still come. So if I get this real wrong, you can correct me, okay? So a week or two ago, they were doing outreach in maybe three weeks, maybe a month, I don't know. And um, a man and woman invited him into their home. He's by himself. She said, I would like, after he talked to her, she said, I would like a Bible study. He gave her a Bible study. How old are you, Ben? 19. 19. He gave her a Bible study. And she was demon-possessed. They have an idol in their house has to do with the dead. And so Ben stayed there. How long did it take? He prayed three hours and cast the devil out of her. His dad wasn't there. He was there. He finally came. Okay. Was your mom there? Okay. 
Cast the devil out of her. Did the husband watch all this or was he there? He was in and out. They're in their early 20s. Husband was in the cartel. But they came to church. About the same time, is Adam and Chris are here today? Where you at? Okay, you're going to have to run. Is Adam here? Am I, I can't see up there. Okay, Chris is here. That's good enough for now. So, about the same time, Brother and Sister Rodriguez had Adam and Carissa come down and teach a marriage seminar at the church. And this woman who got saved got the Holy Ghost and her husband came to the seminar and her husband liked it and her husband prayed and the woman got baptized and her kids got baptized did he get baptized and, and the guy got baptized you baptized him and Adam and Carissa taught them about marriage so Adam and Carissa are just kids in this church. And Ben's just a kid in this church. Just kids. Well, they've grown up a little bit, but you know what I mean. But they're world-class kids. They caught it. They did it. And their parents didn't object to them doing it. Their parents let them do it and encouraged them to do it. Their parents didn't hold them away from the ministry for fear that they were going to lose their love or some other twisted carnal thinking. And then the young man renounced the cartel which if I'm wrong, you can correct me, but you can renounce it once if you're going to a Pentecostal church. Is that, that is true. You don't know that, but you do now. <laughs> because there's articles been written about it. That that's the only reason the cartel will let the, anybody out. But that if you renounce the cartel, now you know, and you go back, no more. One time shot. So he renounced it. But here's the part that is so precious to me. After the marriage seminars, after baptism, has he got the Holy Ghost yet? He's still praying. Is he tall? Six, three, two, five, six, five. He looked at Ben. I'm learning so much. Ben, you're like my dad that I never had. And Ben's 19, and he's 20 whatever. But the power of the Holy Ghost. 
being a mature, Holy Ghost-filled, anointed person makes all of the difference. Stand with me. I know we've been here a while today. I also know that we are at a crossroads. There's some people that should have been here today. There's some people that are casually treating the follow me. But I'm hoping today, and you don't have to be young people, and you don't have to be beginners. Peter was a veteran by the time he goes back in John 21. You may be one of those that feels like, my God, I don't know. In fact, when Jesus greeted him, and he didn't even call him Simon Peter, he called him Simon, son of John, son of Jonas, John. He didn't even give him the name. You talk about a put down. He didn't even give him the name of a rock that he was because he wasn't. But when Peter stepped back up, which means there's hope. You may have missed the boat, but here you are now. Step back up with a triple affirmation. I know some of you, it's time to go eat, but some of you, you know, you know, you know in this moment that it is a moment of destiny, decision-making going on in your life, and it's going to impact you forever. I don't know what else to say. I think we ought to sing. I, would, I don't want you to come unless you're thinking I, I'm, I'm not cutting myself no slack I'm, I'm making it today I'm making it today be in a hurry today. I wouldn't be in a hurry today.